1 Corinthians 50, 50 to, through 58. And we'll actually start in verse 56. And here's how we'll go through uh, this morning. We'll start off with the sting of death. We'll move on to the victory of Christ. And finally, what we'll consider is our response. The sting of death, the victory of Christ, and our response. And so we start off with the sting of death because the reality is there are those kinds of shadows in life. The darkest of which is death itself. But there are times in our lives where we have unpleasant circumstances, adverse circumstances, where we don't really like the way things are going on. There are these kinds of shadows in life, the darkest of which is death. And so we start with the sting of death. And so if you would, read along with me here in verse 56. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And so there's two statements here, and we'll take them in turn. So first he says, The sting of death is sin. Now what does this exactly mean? What is this sting of death. Now, sometimes we get stung by something and we think that's the sting, right? The result. But here what he's talking about, the sting, is actually the instrument of the stinging. It's the stinger. In Revelation 9.10, actually go ahead and turn there because this is uh, helpful for us. Revelation 9.10, John is speaking of the locusts that are coming up from the bottomless pit. And he describes them in verse uh, well, he, he describes them in, in many of these verses, but particularly let's look at verse 10. These locusts, they have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. In other words, in the same way that the stinger of a scorpion is what gives, its the, is what gives the scorpion its power to inject its venom into people, into its victim, in the same way, sin is the sting, the stinger in which gives death its ability, its power to infect its venom in humanity, in us. St- sin is the stinger of death. It is what gives it its ability and its power to afflict. Now, Paul describes this elsewhere as well. You'll know the familiar verse, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, right? So in other words, you do sin, you get death. Sin is what allows death to come in. The wages of sin is death. If you turn over to Romans 5, We see the same concept that it's because of sin that death is here. Sin is what gives death its ability to harm us. Notice Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, well, who is he talking about here? He's talking about Adam, right? Because before this sin, there was no death in the world. It was a happy, blessed place. It was paradise. There was no death. There were no shadows. But through one man, sin entered into the world. And notice what it says, and death through sin. Death came in because of sin. Sin is a wretched thing. Death is a wretched thing that comes in because 
of sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is what gives death its, its power, is what brings it to pass in each of our lives. Notice as you jump down to verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, again, we're talking about Adam, death reigned through the one. So we see the reality that now death is reigning because of the sin of one, and now sin has entered all of humanity, and now death reigns over all of humanity. So that's the first statement, that the sting of death is sin. Let's look at the second one, which is the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. So does Paul talk about this in other passages? And we would say, yes, he does. And since we're here in Romans anyways, let's go ahead and turn to Romans 3, verse 19. And we'll read 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, you can't live up to the standard of God because once the standard is revealed, all of a sudden you're held accountable. And when the knowledge of sin comes, we realize we cannot live up to God's standard. We cannot be justified by the law because the law brings about the knowledge of sin. If we didn't know sin existed before, now we do, and we realize that we fall short of God's glory, and we fall short of his standard. And so in that sense, the law is the power of sin. It is what gives sin, in some senses, an opportunity to afflict us. And we see this as well throughout the book of Romans. Notice Romans 4.15. We'll start in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Why? Well, because the law only brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. The law brings about wrath because now you're held to a standard. The law traces out the lines of what is proper and holy and good behavior. Before the law drew those lines, uh, there was no transgression. There was sin, but there was no transgression because transgression is a going across a line. It is uh, going against God's clear standard that he has written out. And so the law can only bring about wrath for us. We keep going to Romans 5.13, following this theme through. Notice that he says, Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Law, again, is that standard. And now man is held accountable to God's standard. Look down in verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then 
hold that in your mind, this idea that the law came in so that transgression would increase. Because that seems counterintuitive to what we would expect law to do. We expect law to restrict sin, but Paul is saying that the law came in to cause transgression to increase. Notice how this plays out in Romans 7, 5 through 13. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Right? It reveals what sin is. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, notice, sin is dead. There is a sense in which sin gains its power when the law is revealed. Because once we see, oh, we're not supposed to do something, what do we automatically want to do? We want to go and do that thing. And we could think through numerous examples of our life when as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as the parents say no, that's exactly what the kid wants to do. There might be some new sin that you hadn't thought about. Like, it didn't even enter your mind. But as soon as you hear about it, whether it's through the world, whatever it is, all of a sudden, you want to go and pursue it and partake in it. That's what sin does. It takes advantage of the commandment. And it deceives us into thinking, oh, it must be um, uh, forbidden because it's really good or something. Like, it would make me feel really good and, and the world is against me. But... This is what sin does in the law. We keep going. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, right, hypothetically, what happened? It proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, Killed me. So notice we have all three of those dynamics right here in this verse that we were talking about in 1 Corinthians. We have sin, we have law, and we have death. And they go hand in hand. As the law comes, it reveals God's standard. Sin takes an opportunity, deceives us, and that results in death. It results in, in killing us. So this paints, paints a, a dark picture. First off, we have the reality that death is still here. It still has that sting. It still hurts because sin is still in this world. And we still have God's righteous standard. And so in these circumstances, with these dark shadows, how are we to be a people who give thanks always in all circumstances and for everything? Does it seem possible to do that, given the fact that no matter what, no matter how great our life is, at some point, it's going to end. At some point, our loved ones will pass away. How can we give thanks in this sort of circumstance? And that leads us to Christ's victory. 
We can give thanks because of Christ, because he is the victor, because he is the mighty one, because he is the conqueror. Notice back in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read verse 57. Right, So he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory in Christ over death, over sin, over the law. All three of these things, we have victory because of Christ in them. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Because here we see Christ's victory over death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Christ suffered death, and so that way, you and I would never have to taste it. He tasted the death for us. Death is gone. It is done away with. He is the victor. Notice he goes on to describe in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Do you see a paradox here? That through death, death died. In Christ's death, death is abolished and done away with. And not only death itself, but the one who has the power over death, he is rendered powerless, who is the devil. Because it's not just natural causes going on here. There are spiritual forces at play as well. And Christ, in his victory, Christ at the cross, has dealt the final blow to death and the devil. And notice verse 15. What else does he do? So that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. All of us, if we are not in Christ, we live enslaved to fear of death. And I think this fear of death comes in, in a couple different ways. One is the fear of our own death. And the other would be the fear of the death of our loved ones. And so, how does that play out? Well, for some, you know, fear of death in yourself, um, that might look like living it up. You've, you've got one life, and so you take every opportunity to pursue hedonistic pleasure. You think, I'm going to squeeze as much out of this life as I can, uh, because once, once it's gone, it's gone. On the flip side, it might look like kind of a moralism, where you kind of believe in some kind of afterlife, and whatever that is, and maybe if I live a good life, whatever that is, then maybe I can get into a good, a good place after I die, right? And so you set up rules for yourself, and you say, I'm going to be a moral person, and you kind of have a legalistic set of rules. It can look like that. Maybe it looks like you're afraid to go and do anything because death is scary, and, well, I'm going to hold off as long as I can on that, right? And so you set up protective measures and, and whatever, or, or it might look at being, I don't know, overprotective of, of your loved ones. 
not letting them go out and do things because you're afraid of them passing away or dying. But no matter what, for those of us who, well, for those who are not in Christ, every day you live enslaved to the fear of death. That's just the way it is. But when Christ comes and deals that victory blow on the cross, we who are in Christ are freed from that. We don't have to fear death anymore. Because the truth of the matter is, when we die, or when our loved ones die who are in Christ, they are not the weak ones. They are not the ones who could not manage to muster enough strength to make it through. They are the ones who have endured unto the end and are now crowned with life in the presence of our Savior. They are the ones who are victors now in Christ. And so we have no need to fear death, either ourselves or those loved ones in Christ who have died. Christ has dealt the victory. Remember that here in Hebrews 2 verse 14, that it says that he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. We see this same theme also in Colossians 2.15. So turn there. And we'll start in verse 13, Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So first, you're dead in your transgressions. You can't do anything in your sins, in your transgressions. You cannot make yourself pleasing to God. You cannot earn your way to salvation. You're dead in your sins, your transgressions. But it's through faith, it's through Christ that he brings us to life. He makes us alive together with him, having forgiven us of our sins, forgiven of our transgressions. And notice how this came about, verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. The reality is we're born into this life with a debt against, or, or, or a debt to God. Our sin causes a debt, and we cannot pay it, and it is hostile to us. But notice that he says he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's no longer against us. It cannot creep back up in eternity and say, oh yeah, wait, there's one sin that wasn't paid for. If you're in Christ, that is done away with. It is taken care of. It is nailed to the cross, never to be brought up again. But notice that his triumph on, in, the, in the gospel over our sins also has victory over spiritual realities. Notice what he says, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. When Paul talks about rulers and authorities, he's not talking about governors and mayors and, and presidents and congressmen and, and so forth. He's talking about the angelic forces of this world and usually not the good ones right? But Satan and his demons, there are these spiritual realities at play constantly around us. But he says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, they are disarmed through Christ's victory on the cross. And notice, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. They have no more power over the believer because Christ has triumphed over them. 
This is Christ's victory. 2 Timothy 1.10. We'll see a little bit more of Christ's victory over death. Second Timothy 1.10. We'll, we'll start back in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now, right, in this time, here and now, it has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, these dark shadows don't matter much when Christ has won the victory over them all. He is victorious, and that's wonderful, and that's great, and Christ is victorious. But then, how does that look like in our experience? What does Christ's victory look like, actually, with us? And to that, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll pick up in verse 50. And he's referring to the time when Christ returns. This is when Christ's victory, I think, will be most evident. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, right? not everyone is going to die. There will be a generation that is here alive and well when Christ returns. But we will all be changed. Those who have died and those who are living will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, right? This is quick. This is a flash. This is not some long, drawn-out process. And how do we know this? Well, at the last trumpet, uh, for, the, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality, I believe that this is the exact same thing that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 at the return of Christ. And so turn there because we get a, a perhaps a fuller picture here. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, right? Those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we're not going to get any extra benefits for having survived until the return of Christ. The dead in Christ are not missing out on anything. And he explains why that is the case in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And notice, the dead in Christ will rise second. 
first. They will precede us. They are not, we're, we're not going, whoever's alive is not going to receive, you know, extra benefits for staying alive. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are comforting words that Christ has earned the victory. And when he comes again, we will all participate in that victory with him. In my reading uh, in preparation for this, I came across uh, an illustration that I'm almost certain is uh, fictional, but it was touching. And so I wanted to share it with you as well. So you have a father and, and daughter who are going on a picnic uh, out in kind of a grove of trees. It's a nice grassy place, uh, really pretty and everything, and they're enjoying a, a daddy-daughter date. Uh, one problem, the, the daughter is uh, deathly allergic to bees. And so they're out there enjoying their picnic when a bee comes out of the trees and starts buzzing around them. And so obviously the, the child is uh, distraught and, and concerned over the bee. So the father thinks quickly and, and reaches out his hand and, and catches the bee. And he holds it in his hand for a few seconds and then releases it. And the daughter is going, Daddy, Daddy, why did you let the bee go? And instead of explaining it all to her, he reaches out his hand and shows where the bee has stung him. Because now the sting is in his hand, and that bee cannot sting any longer. The daughter is safe because the father has absorbed the sting of the bee. Christ has absorbed the full sting of death. He has taken it all. He is strong. He is mighty. He has taken it all so that we have nothing to fear any longer from the sting of death. It's gone. Christ is victorious, and we are victorious in Christ. And so we have Christ's victory. Well, then, given Christ's victory, right, we can have thanks to God, right? Because he says, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. We can give thanks to God because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We become participators in that victory. Well, then what should be our response to that? In response to Christ's victory, what do we do? Thankfully, we don't have to come up with a whole lot of fancy ideas uh, you know, from our own minds. You just have to look at the text because in verse 58, what's the first word? It says, therefore. And so we have the response written for us. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not empty. It's not worthless. And so we're called to be steadfast. In the sense, you're, you're walking on a path and nothing can get you off of that path. When adverse circumstances come, 
You keep putting one foot in front of the other. You keep stepping. You're, you're steadfast. You're going forward. Immovable. That's the picture of a pillar, right? And, and as much as you push against it, it can't be budged. And those two kind of, you get the idea of something that, that doesn't move at all, right? But we're not called to only just be pillars who stay in one spot. We are called to be steadfast, immovable. But notice the third one. Abounding, always abounding in the work of of the Lord. This speaks to flourishing. This speaks to overflowing. This speaks to overwhelming, excelling. And there's no age limit here. Whether you're eight or 80 or younger or older, uh, you're called to abound in the work of the Lord. All of us are called to this. And we see where this first starts. It first starts in our redemption with Christ. Turn to John 10.10. Because here's what we're doing, by the way, so that way I don't lose y'all. We're following this theme of abounding, this, this overflowing. Because this word is used often throughout Scripture to, to deal with the Christian life. So that's what we're doing. So, John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came, right, this is Jesus speaking, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly aboundingly. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not, well, now that Jesus come, came, he wants you to have, you know, a million dollars or whatever it is, right? This is abounding in the life, in what God has called you to do, in being able to be free to do what God designed you to do. Good works, pleasing him, glorifying him. So Christ came so that we might have life and have it aboundingly, abundantly, overflowingly. And then if we go back to 1 Corinthians and we go to 14, 12, we're going to be looking through a lot of these passages because we're going to be filling out our, our, our notion of what living in abundantly in the work of the Lord looks like. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So you also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So here Paul is really getting after the, Corinthian, uh, the Corinthians because they are looking for the, the really spectacular gifts that would get a lot of attention and, and applause. And Paul's saying, don't worry about that. What you need to seek to abound in is the edification of the church. And so as believers, are we people who are seeking to abound, overflow, multiply in loving and building up and edifying even this body? Are we that kind of people? Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? If you go over to 2 Corinthians 8, 7. We see some more. He says in verse 7. But just as you abound in everything. So here he's talking about their current state. He, he's giving them some affirmation and, and some encouragement. I, I see that you are abounding in these things. In faith and, and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you. See that you abound also in this gracious work. And he's talking there about giving and, and being gracious uh, and being generous to those in need. So 
It's not enough to just abound in a couple of areas in the Christian life. We're called to abound in all areas in the Christian life. Everything that God has commanded for us, we are to abound in those things. Go to 9.8. Because here we get to, well, how do we do this? Do we just muster up our own strength, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and just kind of try to overflow? Well, no. Notice 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance, an abounding for every good good deed. You see the progression here. First, God has all of his grace, and he's pouring that into you, so that way you don't have to pull it out of yourself. You have all the grace you need so that you can abound as well. Right? In other words, he's saying, don't be a dam that stops up all the waters. Rather, be a channel that flows everything that God is pouring forth, all of his grace, into the lives of others, into abounding in the work uh, that God has called us to. We have sufficiency for every good deed and and, and an abundance for every good deed. So we have his grace. Notice Romans 5.13. Excuse me, 15.13. Once again, we're speaking of what gives us the ability to abound in this way. This is Paul's prayer, Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have sort of two... two, um, Influxes here. We have God filling us with, uh, with joy and peace in believing so that we can abound, overflow, excel in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have all of God's grace and we have the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells within us to help us abound, to overflow in all of these good works, to abound in hope. We don't have to be beggars for hope. We are called to abound in hope because of God's overwhelming, overflowing grace and the power of the Holy Spirit who works within us. Philippians 1.9 Once again, Paul's prayer. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In other words, it seemed like the Philippians were already abounding in love. And Paul says, now I'm praying that you abound still more and more in, all, uh, in knowledge and discernment. So whatever stage we're at, we're called to abound even more in the love and in the work of the Lord. First Thessalonians 3.12. We're getting close here. First Thessalonians 3.12. We'll start here in verse 11. Another one of Paul's prayers. 
Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So not only believers, but all people. First Thessalonians, oh, that, that was it, Colossians 2.7. Starting in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing, abounding, overflowing with gratitude. Right? That's thanksgiving. It is being thankful for what God has given you. It's an attitude of thanksgiving. It's, it's gratitude. A few more. Second Corinthians 4.15. This gets to what is the result of, of abounding. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. In other words, as grace comes to you, you respond in thanksgiving to God, and that is overflowing to more and more people in which you have this, this I was going to say cacophony, but that's usually a bad thing, this symphony of praise and thanksgiving rising up to God in which he is glorified. It is abounding to that. You turn over just a couple of pages to 2 Corinthians 9.12. We see a similar thought. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, right? So they, they are giving uh, to, to the churches in need, the saints who are in need. And it's not just, you know, providing a need, right? Meeting their need, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God, right? It's abounding. So when you give to those who are in need, they, in turn, thank God for what he has done, and so it's overflowing. And we'll look at one final one, 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, and 10, or through 10. For now, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly. That's that same word, aboundingly, overflowingly. And I started thinking, oh boy, do my prayers look like overflowing uh, it's just kind of like overflowing all the time, constantly. Or, or when I pray for someone in particular, am I just constantly abounding and overflowing in my prayers for that person? Or do I stop a moment, do I pray, and then kind of go on with my life? And then maybe if I think about it again, stop and pray. Or am I abounding, overflowing in prayer uh, for others? Is that what our prayer looks like? We keep going there. 
earnestly, right, so that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, oh, we already read that, but yeah. So this call to abound in the work of the Lord always. And we see the reason, if we go back to 1 Corinthians in our, in our passage, we see this. Knowing. Why do we do it? Because we know that our toil, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Right? It's not empty. We have these remarkable promises from God that for some reason he has decided to reward the faithfulness of those who believe in him. This is not a works salvation. We're not earning salvation or anything like that. But in his grace, in his sovereign grace, he has chosen to reward the faithfulness of believers. Right? We're laying up an eternal weight of glory. We are waiting for that time in the future. But we know that the things that we do, the work of the Lord here and now that we participate in, it's not in vain in the Lord because we know that he has already won the victory and that is sure and that is able to be trusted. And so we have seen the sting of death. It's there. It's real. We have these shadows here. But we have Christ's victory over these things. He has overwhelmingly conquered. One a section of verses that we didn't read. It says, uh, verse 54, When these things come about, Christ's victory, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? It's gone. O death, where is your sting? He doesn't have one anymore for believers. Christ is victorious. And we have our response to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For we know that our toil, our hard labor, is not in vain. And so what is the enduring basis of thanksgiving? What is that unchanging basis of thanksgiving that no matter the circumstances, we can give thanks to God for? It's Christ's victory, which we participate in through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of encouragement. Lord, thank you that we no longer have to fear death or any other unpleasant circumstance, Lord. We know that you have given us the victory through Jesus Christ. He is mighty. He is strong. He is the conqueror. And Lord, we are safe in him. And so always we can give thanks to you. Lord, in our response, may we be people who are steadfast and movable. Lord, let us not be um, pushed off of our course in walking this uh, life with you. May we not drift away. May we not be dragged away. May we not be allured or enticed away from walking um, in your path. May we be steadfast. May we be immovable. But Lord, may we always be abounding in the work of the Lord. May we overflow, and not in our own strength, but because of the grace that you supply us with. You give us all sufficiency, and you have given us your Holy Spirit, who works in us mightily.
So Father, make us this kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.